Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for for coming. Um, we're here for uh, this much-anticipated reading by my good friend Alejandro Zambra. Um, Alejandro is, without a doubt, uh, one of the most celebrated Latin American writers of the moment and somebody who's crossed over into English language uh, publication in a huge way. Um, his story is being translated in the New Yorker magazine. He's, um, his readings all over the United States. I mean, this guy's really connecting with readers in a big way. He has true fans, no, which not every writer has. And uh, he, um, he's right now on scholarship at the, uh, at, uh, at the New York Public Library Kuhlman Center, this wonderful year-long scholarship that they have there. Alejandro's published eight books. Um, five of them are in English. Here's a fifth one coming out uh, uh, very shortly in July, right, approximately. Um, his most recent is My Documents, the book of short stories. But we're going to read some fragments from Ways of Going Home, his wonderful uh, uh, novel. Um, a couple, you, you know, I first, when did I first meet? I first met you in Mexico, right? I first met, we've been good friends for a while. I first met Alejandro at a book fair mm -hmm. in, in, yeah, in Zacatecas, Mexico, the Hay Festival some years ago. But relevant to some of what we're going to read today, you know, one of the things that, there's so much to say about Alejandro's writing, right, his extraordinary, I don't know quite how to put it, uh, but it's something only, you know, from Chekhov, you know, through the centuries. There, every now and then there are just writers who somehow take the fiction form and sort of invent our sense of what intimacy is. They have a way of speaking in such a intimate, close, honest, compelling way that they take the reality of everyday life, uh, the material, the most obvious material in the world, and turn it into something just so stunningly uh, multi-layered and resonant and new and kind of magical. There's something about the way Alejandro writes that just, you recognize, you know, you recognize his writing anywhere. You could never imitate it. it his voice is just like uh, another. Um, you really feel the poet that he's, uh, he's, he's published. He's, he's began as a poet, right, I think. But anyway, uh, he's also Marx, especially in Chile, where he's twice won the national award for the, the Chilean novel <coughs> award. Um, uh, he's really... A, gener a generational voice. In a way, you'll hear in what we're going to section we're going to read now. Uh, he's not, although he spent, you know, he's not like Roberto Bolaño, for example, his great predecessor, a voice uh, right out of the cataclysm of the Pinochet dictatorship and the years of warfare, political strife and warfare, and political oppression, not just in Chile, but all throughout Latin America. He's, you know, from a generation or two generations after. And in the most wonderful way, uh, he writes with all the 
perturbed curiosity and wonderment and guilt and anxiety of having been a child growing up in those shadows. No, and not really knowing what your parents were doing, what your neighbors, what your school children's, what your school friends' parents were doing. And he's just been extraordinarily important as, as the voice uh, uh, from that very important point of view of that transition. Um, um, I met him in, uh, it was just a wonder, I'll just tell the anecdote, it was just so wonderful. I was in Chile doing a piece, I had to do, you know, Chile had this extraordinary, but probably the strongest anyone has seen in the world, uh, student movement. Uh, they're particularly crested in 211, 212. Uh, undergraduates, a lot of them your age, uh, leading extraordinary marches, paralyzing Chile, really changing Chile uh, um, uh, over issues like free education which, and things like that. Bernie Sanders kinds of issues <laughs> and so on. Um, it's uh, in a, in a, in a, in a, and, and I, I had to do a story on some of these extraordinary uh, uh, young leaders from the student movement. It was kind of ridiculous trying to chase around. If you want to feel humiliated, you might be chasing around 21-year-old student leaders and trying to arrange interviews with them. <laughs> and um, um, it's, uh, but I thought, you know, uh, the high schools were out in strike too. And Alejandro is the, a graduate of the most legendary high school in, uh, in Chile, the National Institute, which only the smartest, smartest kids get into. And it's a double-edged sword, as he's written about in some of his most wonderful stories. Uh, it was yeah, a great opportunity to go there, but it was, a, especially under Pinochet, it was a, very much like a, a school, you know, run, and uh, it had a very ambiguous relationship to the dictatorship, let's say, and, 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 and sometimes run in a kind of harsh military way. And when you go in there, you see, you know, along the walls and murals of the, how, I forget how many graduates died under, from Pinochet's repression and all the graduates who become presidents of Chile and everything else. But we got there and I thought it would be really great to go and report, included it in my article, a little section on going to the National Institute that was being on strike and occupied with students with one of their graduates and you know, go in with him and have him talk to the students and see it through his eyes. And it was so hilarious because we got there and the president of the student strike came out to see us and he was like dressed like someone from Hogwarts, right? With his type of very serious, very serious young 17 or 18 year old revolutionary. And they wouldn't let us in. He said we couldn't come in, remember? And, uh, um, you know, and all the, the way they barricaded through all the front gates, they would take all the chairs and like stick them through the gates so it looked like a giant porcupine, you know, bristling with really intimidating looking, the front gates, bristling with all those chair legs. And all of a sudden, this that sort of elderly, chubby teacher comes walking through. And she sees him standing and she goes, Alejandro. And he had been there, what, like over 20 years before, and it was his old literature teacher. And she embraced him and loudly announced, this is the best student I ever had. And after that, the kid, the, the, the hardline, Stalinist leader of the strike uh, relented and decided to let us in. And we, we had fun um, going around and talking to some of the students there. 
Uh, so anyway, that's one of those story. Uh, we will, uh, we're going to read from Ways of Going Home. Alejandro will read some sections in Spanish, and then I'll read them in English. Uh, is there anything else I should say? Thank you for this kind invitation, for this words, Francisco, which is a friend and, and also a, a writer I admire. So I'm very happy. Uh, I'm going to read from, is it, do you hear me well? Yeah? Hello? Ah. We had to turn it on. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, in Spanish, which is a language I speak fluently. <laughs> and, and Francisco is going to read in English, like uh, some excerpts from this novel, Ways of Going Home, I wrote, I don't know, six years ago. Um, and then Q&A? Q &A. Okay. Una vez me perdí. A los seis o siete años. Venía distraído y de repente ya no vi a mis padres. Me asusté, pero enseguida retomé el camino y llegué a casa antes que ellos. Seguían buscándome, desesperados. Pero esa tarde pensé que se habían perdido. Que yo sabía regresar a casa y ellos no. Once I got lost. I was six or seven. I got distracted, and all of a sudden, I couldn't see my parents anymore. I was scared, but I immediately found the way home and got there before they did. They kept looking for me, desperate, but I thought they were lost, that I knew how to get home, and they didn't. How many people speak or understand Spanish here? Oh, but maybe we could be like, we're gonna do it some other way like I, I will read a paragraph and then Francisco in order to so no one has to yeah too long yeah because I'm gonna read some longer excerpts maybe we should start over like uh, good afternoon no? <laughs> En lugar de escribir, pasé la mañana tomando cerveza y leyendo Madame Bovary. Ahora pienso que lo mejor que he hecho en estos años ha sido beber muchísima cerveza y releer algunos libros con devoción, con extraña fidelidad, como si en ellos latiera algo propio, alguna pista sobre el destino. Por lo demás, leer morosamente, echarse en la cama largas horas sin solucionar nunca la picazón en los ojos, Es la coartada perfecta para esperar la llegada de la noche. Y eso espero, nada más. Que la noche llegue pronto. Instead of writing, I spent the morning drinking beer and reading Madame Bovary. Now I think the best thing I've done in recent years has been to drink a lot of beer and reread certain books with dedication, with an odd fidelity, as of something of my own beat within them, some clue to my destiny. Apart from that, to read morosely, stretched out in bed for long hours, and doing nothing to soothe my burning eyes, it's the perfect pretext for, for waiting for night to fall. And that's what I hope for, nothing more, that night will come quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Todavía recuerdo la tarde en que la profesora se volvió a la pizarra y escribió las palabras prueba próximo viernes, Madame Bovary, Gustave Flaubert, francés. Con cada letra crecía el silencio y al final solamente se oía el triste chirrido de la tiza. I still remember the afternoon when the teacher turned to the blackboard and wrote the words quiz next Friday, Madame, Bovary, Gustave, Flaubert, French. With each letter, the silence grew until finally only the sad squeak of the chalk could be heard. Por entonces ya habíamos leído novelas largas, casi tan largas como Madame Bovary, pero esta vez el plazo era imposible. Teníamos menos de una semana para enfrentar una novela de 400 páginas. Comenzábamos a acostumbrarnos, sin embargo, a esas sorpresas. Acabábamos de entrar al Instituto Nacional, teníamos 11 o 12 años, y ya sabíamos que en adelante todos los libros serían largos. By that time, we had already read long novels, some almost as long as Madame Bovary. But this time, the deadline was impossible. We had less than a week to confront a 400-page novel. We were starting to get used to those surprises, though. We had just entered the National Institute. We were 11 or 12 years old, and we, and we understood that from then on, all the books would be long. Estoy seguro de que esos profesores no querían entusiasmarnos, sino disuadirnos, alejarnos para siempre de los libros. No gastaban saliva hablando sobre el placer de la lectura, tal vez porque ellos habían perdido ese placer o nunca lo habían sentido realmente. Se supone que eran buenos profesores, pero entonces ser bueno era poco más que saberse los manuales. I feel sure that those teachers didn't want to inspire enthusiasm for books, but rather to deter us from them, to put us off books forever. They didn't waste their spit talking about the joy of reading, maybe because they had lost that joy or they'd never really felt it. Supposedly, they were good teachers, but back then, being good meant little more than knowing the textbook. Al tiempo ya conocíamos los trucos transmitidos de generación en generación. Se nos enseñaba a ser tramposos y aprendíamos rápido. En todas las pruebas había un ítem de identificación de personajes que incluía puros personajes secundarios. Mientras menos relevante fuera el personaje, era mayor la posibilidad de que nos preguntaran por él. Así que memorizábamos los nombres con resignación y también con la alegría de cultivar un puntaje seguro. Era imposible, era importante saber que el joven cojo de los mandados se llamaba Hipólito y la criada Felicité, y que el nombre de la hija de Emma era Berta Bovary. After a while, we learned the tricks that were passed down from one generation to the next. They taught us to be cheaters, and we were fast learners. Every test had a section of character identification, which included only secondary characters. The less relevant the characters, the more likely we would be asked about them. So we memorized names resignedly, though with the pleasure of guaranteed points. It was important to know that the errand boy with a limp was named Hippolito, and the maid was Felicité, and that the name of Emma Bovary's daughter was Berta Bovary. Había cierta belleza en el gesto, pues entonces éramos justamente eso, personajes secundarios, centenares de niños que cruzaban la ciudad equilibrando apenas los bolsos de mezclilla. Los vecinos del barrio tomaban el peso y hacían siempre la misma broma. Parece que llevaras piedras en la mochila. 
El centro de Santiago nos recibía con bombas lacrimógenas, pero no llevábamos piedras, sino ladrillos de Baldor o de Vilé o de Flaubert. There was a certain beauty in the act, because back then we were exactly that, secondary characters, hundreds of children who crisscrossed the city lugging denim backpacks. The neighbors would test the weight and always make the same joke. What are you carrying in there, rocks? Downtown Santiago welcomed us with tear gas bombs, but we weren't carrying rocks. We were carrying books by Baldor or Villet or Flaubert. Madame Bovary era una de las pocas novelas que había en casa, así que empecé a leerla esa misma noche, pero no tuve paciencia con las descripciones. La prosa de Flaubert simplemente me hacía cabecear. Tuve que aplicar el método de urgencia que me había enseñado mi padre, leer las dos primeras páginas y enseguida las dos últimas, y solo entonces, solo después de saber el comienzo y el final de la novela, seguir leyendo de corrido. Si no alcanzas a terminar, al menos ya sabes quién es el asesino, decía mi padre, que al parecer solo había leído libros en que había un asesino. Madame Bovary was one of the few novels we had in our house, so I started reading that very same night, but I grew impatient with all the descriptions. Flaubert's prose simply made me doze off. I had to resort to the emergency method my father taught me, read the first two pages and then the last two, and only then, only after knowing how the novel begins and ends, Do you continue reading in order? Even if you don't finish, at least you already know who the killer is, said my father, who apparently only read books that had killers. Entonces lo primero que supe de Madame Bovary fue que el niño tímido y alto del capítulo inicial finalmente moriría y que su hija terminaría de obrera en una fábrica de algodón. Sobre el suicidio de Emma ya sabía, pues algunos padres alegaron que el tema del suicidio era demasiado fuerte para niños de 12 años, a lo que la profesora respondió que no que el suicidio de una mujer acosada por las deudas era un tema muy actual, perfectamente comprensible por niños de 12 años. So the first thing I ascertained about Madame Bovary was that the shy, tall boy from the first chapter would ultimately die, and that his daughter would end up as a laborer in a cotton factory. I already knew about Emma's suicide, since some of the parents had complained that suicide was too harsh a subject for children of 12, to which the teacher replied that no, the suicide of a woman hounded by debt was a very contemporary subject, one that children of 12 could understand perfectly well. No avancé mucho más en la lectura. Estudié un poco con los resúmenes que había hecho mi compañero de banco, y el día anterior a la prueba encontré una copia de la película en el videoclub de Maipú. Mi mamá intentó oponerse a que la viera, pues pensaba que no era adecuada para mi edad. Y yo también pensaba, o más bien esperaba eso, porque Madame Bovary me sonaba a porno. Todo lo francés me sonaba a porno. I didn't get much further in my reading. I studied the summaries my deskmate had written, and the day before the test I found a copy of the movie in the Maipú video store. My mother tried to keep me from watching it, saying it wasn't appropriate for my age. I thought so too, or rather, I hoped so. Madame Bovary sounded pornographic to me. Everything French sounded pornographic to me. La película era, en este sentido, decepcionante. Pero la vi dos veces y llené las hojas de oficio por lado y lado. Saqué un 3,6, sin embargo, de manera que durante algún tiempo asocié a Madame Bovary a ese 3,6 y al nombre del director de la película, que la profesora escribió entre signos de exclamación junto a la mala nota, 
bin Santa Minelli. In that sense, the movie was a disappointment, but I watched it twice and filled in the required worksheets on both sides. I got only a 3.6 after all that, and for some time I associated Madame Bovary with a 3.6, which I also tied to the name of the film's director, written with exclamation points by my teacher next to my bad grade, Vincente Menelli. Busco ahora a Berta en la novela. Recordaba solamente el momento en el capítulo 5 de la segunda parte en que Emma mira a Berta y piensa, extrañada, mira qué fea esta niña. Y la terrible escena de la muerte de Charles cuando Berta piensa que su padre está jugando, creyendo que quería hacerle una broma, le dio un empujoncito. Bovary cayó al suelo. Estaba muerto. Now I look for Berta in the novel. I remembered only the moment in chapter five of the second part when Emma looks at Berta and thinks, surprised, look how ugly she, the girl is. And the terrible scene of, Char of Charles's death when Berta thinks her father is pretending. Thinking he was playing a joke on her, she gave him a little push. Bovary fell to the floor. He was dead. Me gusta imaginar a Berta merodeando por el patio mientras su madre está en cama convaleciente. Emma escucha desde su cuarto el ruido de un carruaje y se acerca con esfuerzo a la ventana para mirar la calle ya desierta. I like to imagine Berta prowling about the yard while her mother is in bed convalescing. From her room, Emma hears the sounds of a carriage and she approaches the window with difficulty to look down at the now deserted street. Me gusta pensar en Berta aprendiendo a leer. Primero es Emma quien intenta enseñarle. Después de su gran desilusión, ha decidido volver a la vida y convertirse en una mujer entregada a ocupaciones piadosas. Berta es todavía muy pequeña y de seguro no entiende las lecciones. Pero durante esos días o semanas o meses, su madre tiene toda la paciencia del mundo. Le enseña a su hija a leer y remienda ropa para los pobres y hasta consulta obras religiosas. I like to imagine Berta learning to read. First, Emma is the one who tries to teach her. After her great disappointment, she has decided to rededicate her life and become a woman of pious occupations. Berta is still very small and surely doesn't understand the lessons. But during those days or weeks or months, her mother has all the patience in the world. She teaches her daughter to read and mend clothes for the poor, and even reads religious books. Un tiempo después, Charles lleva a Berta a dar un paseo y trata de enseñarle a leer con un libro de medicina. Pero la niña no tiene el hábito del estudio, por lo que se entristece y se echa a llorar. Sometime later, Charles takes Berta on a walk and tries to teach her to read using a medical book, but the girl isn't in the habit of studying so she gets sad and starts to cry. Hay un pasaje en que Charles piensa en el futuro de Berta y desde luego se equivoca mucho al imaginarla a los 15 años paseando en verano con un gran sombrero de paja tan bella como su madre. Al verlas a lo lejos parecerían hermanas, piensa Charles, satisfecho. There's a passage where Charles thinks about Berta's future. And of course, he is very wrong when he imagines her at 15, strolling in the summertime wearing a big straw hat, as beautiful as her mother. Looking at them from far away, 
They look like sisters, thinks Charles, satisfied. Esta mañana vi en un banco del parque intercomunal a una mujer leyendo. Me senté enfrente para verle la cara y fue imposible. El libro absorbía su mirada y por momentos creí que ella lo sabía, que alzar el libro de esa manera, a la estricta altura de los ojos, con ambas manos, con los codos apoyados en una mesa imaginaria, era su forma de esconderse. Vi su frente blanca y el pelo casi rubio, pero nunca sus ojos. El libro era su antifaz, su preciada máscara. Sus dedos largos sostenían el libro como ramas delgadas y vigorosas. Me acerqué en un momento lo bastante como para mirar incluso sus uñas cortadas sin rigor, como si acabara de comérselas. Estoy seguro de que sentía mi presencia, pero no bajó el libro. Siguió sosteniéndolo como quien sostiene la mirada. Leer es cubrirse la cara, pensé. Leer es cubrirse la cara y escribir es mostrarla. This morning I saw a woman reading on a bench in the intercommunal park. I sat down across from her just to get a look at her face, but it was impossible. The book absorbed her gaze completely, and there were a few moments I believed she was aware of it. That holding the book like, like that, at the exact height of her eyes, with both hands, her elbows resting on an imaginary table, was her way of hiding. I saw her white forehead and her almost blonde hair, but never her eyes. The book was her disguise, a precious mask. Her long fingers held up the book like strong, slender branches. I got close enough at one point to see that her nails were ragged, as if she had been chewing them. I'm sure she sensed my presence, but she didn't lower the book. She held it as if she were meeting someone else's gaze. To read is to cover one's face, I thought. To read is to cover one's face, and to write is to show it. Hoy inventé este chiste. Cuando grande voy a ser un personaje secundario, le dice un niño a su padre. ¿Por qué? ¿Por qué qué? ¿Por qué quieres ser un personaje secundario? Porque la novela es tuya. Today I made up this joke. When I grow up, I'm going to be a secondary character, a boy says to his father. Why? Why what? Why do you want to be a secondary character? Because the novel is yours. Siempre pensé que no tenía verdaderos recuerdos de infancia que mi historia cabía en unas pocas líneas, en una página, tal vez, y en letra grande. Ya no pienso eso. El fin de semana en familia me ha estropeado el ánimo. Encuentro consuelo en una carta que Kawabata escribió a su amigo Yukio Mishima 
en 1962. Diga lo que diga su madre, usted tiene una escritura magnífica. Hace un rato intenté escribir un poema, pero solo conseguí estos pocos en decasílabos. Yo iba a ser un recuerdo cuando grande, pero ya estoy cansado de seguir buscando y rebuscando la belleza de un árbol mutilado por el viento. El único verso que me gusta es el primero. Yo iba a ser un recuerdo cuando grande. I always thought I didn't have real childhood memories, that my history fit into a few lines. On one page, maybe, in large print. I don't think that anymore. The family weekend has crushed my will. I find consolation in a letter that Yasunari Kawatawa wrote to his friend Yukio Mishima in 1962. Whatever your mother says, your writing is magnificent. Just now I tried to write a poem, but I managed only, only a few lines. Growing up, I meant to be a memory, but now I've had as much as I can bear of forever seeking out the beauty in a tree that's been disfigured by the wind. The part I like is the beginning. Growing up, I meant to be a memory. I'm going to read in English uh, the first paragraphs of this story called My Documents. Sorry for my English. But The first time I saw a computer was in 1980, when I was four or five years old. It's not a pure memory, though. I'm probably mixing it up with other later visits to my father's office on Calle Agustinas. I remember my father explaining how those enormous machines worked, his black eyes fixed on mine, his perpetual cigarette in, in hand. He waited for my odd reaction, and I faked interest. But as soon as I could, I went off to play near Loreto, a thin-lipped secretary with bangs framing her face, who never remembered my name. Loreto's electric typewriter struck me as marvelous. Its small screen where the words accumulated until a powerful salvo carved them into the paper. It was a device that was perhaps similar to a computer, but I never thought of it that way. In any case, I preferred the other machine at her desk, a conventional black Olivetti, a model I was very familiar with because we had one just like it at my house. My mother had studied programming, but she'd abandoned computers and opted instead for that lesser technology which was still current then, since the proliferation of computers was still a ways off. My mother didn't get paid for any of her typing work. The text she transcribed were songs, stories, and poems written by my grandmother, who was always entering some contest or working on a project that would, she thought, finally pull her out of anonymity and into the spotlight. I remember my mother working at the dining room table, carefully inserting the carbon paper, painstakingly applying whiteout when she made a mistake. She always typed very quickly, using all of her fingers, without looking at the keyboard. Maybe I can say it like this. My father was a computer, 
and my mother was a typewriter. Yes. Mm -hmm. 